All right, we're in James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. Uh, there's an old saying, I'm sure you've heard it. Never, play, never pray for patience, right? You ever heard that one? You know why? Because if you pray for patience, then God's going to give you uh, situations that you'll need patience for. Now, I will say there is some truth to that, but it is absolutely wrong. Now, here's what I mean. It's true in the sense that, at least in my experience, when you pray for patience, you don't just become patient. You don't just wake up the next day and suddenly you're patient. That's at least never been my experience. So it is true in that sense. But it's also true that you're in those situations anyway. I mean, think about it. Haven't you noticed that traffic gets the worst when you're in a hurry? If you're, if you're going somewhere, it doesn't matter what time you need to get there, then the traffic flows just as free as can be. If you've got little kids at home, they are always at their worst on the day when you most need a quiet night on the couch. That is absolutely the truth. Or when people come over, right? When people come over. Uh, and, and if there is that one person in your office that you absolutely cannot stand, you can guarantee that the boss is going to pair you up with him for a trip out of town or a group project or something like that. That's, those things are guaranteed. And more seriously, more seriously, all of us have dealt with situations where we were praying for something we knew would be a good thing. Praying for healing, praying for reconciliation, praying for some miracle, and it hasn't happened. And we're wondering why. Uh, we've been in situations, probably most of us, if not all of us, where there's somebody who, for whatever reason, has just decided to make our lives miserable. They just have singled us out as the person they're going to torment and we're wondering, okay, when's God going to step up and bring justice? Here I am, Lord. I'm doing what you told me to do. I'm not lashing out, uh, but you're going to vindicate me, right? And it doesn't happen, and it doesn't happen. Uh, there, there are times when we watch the news, and we get so discouraged about the state of the world, and we just say, I don't know why Jesus hadn't come back yet. This is true. I think all of us can uh, relate to that. And then on top of that, there are many of us, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, and if, if your spouse is one of these, don't raise your hand for them. But there are many of us who would say, yeah, I keep losing my temper. I keep saying things I shouldn't say. I keep hurting people that I'm supposed to love. Uh, and, and I keep thinking, as I get older, I'm going to get over that. I'm going to become more mature. I'm going to become more self-controlled. And it's just not happening. Lord, when will I gain this patience that I'm hoping for? Now, so this is why I say... It is true that you, if you pray for patience, you're not just going to magically become patient, but it's wrong to say not to pray for patience. Because let me ask you something. You're going to go through all those situations anyway. Would you rather do that with the power of God, using it to bring about some good result in your life, or would you rather go through those situations on your own? That's the question you need to ask yourself. So it is absolutely incorrect to say you shouldn't pray for patience. I, I don't know a person alive who doesn't at least occasionally need more patience, and I know most of the people I know need it every single day. So, uh, you need to pray for patience because patience is important, and every one of us needs it. The definition of patience, the, the word patience in Scripture is often uh, a translation of a Greek word pronounced like this, macrothumia. I don't usually, I don't usually try to show off with Greek because uh, it's, it's, it implies that you need to know it in order to understand the Bible, and that's not true. But there are certain things that are kind of interesting about it that I just want to point out. 
So the word macrothumia, macro means long, and thumia means passion or emotion or desire. So uh, the real, the way this is translated, if you carry a King James, is long-suffering. Long-suffering and patience, same word, macrothumia. It means you are able to put up with something for a long time without losing your temper, without giving up. Uh, and, it, and it is in Scripture all the time. If you want to go home and do an experiment, just type into your search engine on your internet, Scriptures about patience. You will be amazed at how many there are. This one site that I used came up with 100, and since it came up with exactly 100, I'm thinking there are probably more than that. You know, it's, it's very unlikely that there are only 100, that there's such an even number. My point is, this is a very, very biblical concept. And, and, and let's, let me just give you a few scriptures. First of all, I won't read it, but Galatians 5, 22 through 23, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, patience is in there. Love, joy, peace, patience is the fourth one. Uh, Ecclesiastes 7, 9. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. What I love about that verse is that's exactly the kind of verse that if you quoted it to an impatient person, he'd punch you in the face. <laughs> but it's still true. I like this one too. Proverbs 16.32 Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. You are heroic if you can control your anger. More heroic than the person that we, that we laud in action movies who just loses their temper and goes and slaughters the enemy. No, you are a hero if you can control your temper. So there are basically two different ways that term long-suffering is used in Scripture. And the first is the one I've just outlined where you are bearing with difficult people. You are bearing with people in their, in their uh, frailty, in their sinfulness, in their thoughtlessness. We all have to deal with that. I don't know if it encourages, encourages you any, but you're that person for somebody else from time to time. You're that person that they have to say, oh gosh, not him again. Oh goodness, I just cannot take her. We all need patience of that kind. But there's another kind of patience the scriptures talk about. Verse 30, uh, Psalm 37, verse 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. And of course, we all know Isaiah 40. Those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings as eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not grow faint because they wait upon the Lord. The other way that that term long-suffering is used is when we, when we are long-suffering not toward people, but towards circumstances and saying, things are bad and I don't know why and I don't know where God is or what He's doing, but I'm patient enough to wait and, and not take my own justice and not get my own solutions, but wait upon the Lord to bring about what He's promised. So that's, that's the way patience is used in the scriptures. Now, with that long introduction, here's our passage in the book of James. James 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. 
You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Just to remind you, last week, in the beginning of chapter 5, we talked about James's words of woe for those who are rich. Again, not implying that being poor makes you automatically righteous or, or having a certain number, having certain income makes you unrighteous, but simply that if you've been blessed with a lot, you're in a dangerous spiritual predicament and you can very easily run afoul of God's purposes and yet think you're righteous because you're so blessed. So you have to keep that in context when you read this passage, uh, knowing that part of his, uh, his entreaty to be patient, his command to use patience, is targeted at the people in, in his congregation who were poor. James understood. Remember who James was. He was the son of Joseph and Mary of Nazareth. That meant he grew up poor. And if, as a lot of folks believe, uh, his father died when he was still a boy before Jesus had grown up and left the house, if that's true, we can't prove it, but if that's true, then he was even poorer because he was the son of a widow with several sons at home. And so he understood the resentment you can feel if you're a person in that culture where a lot of folks are very, very poor, where poverty in that culture is very different than poverty here. Uh, nobody in this country is starving to death. There are too many social safety nets, even for the poorest of the poor. But in that world, you lived on that knife's edge where you could easily die if you didn't get the right uh, kind of harvest or the, you didn't get someone who would, uh, it, who would pay you to uh, mow their crops or, or, or harvest their wheat. And so for you to feel this sense of resentment for people who have a lot and, and, and yet abuse those who have less, James understood, but he's saying, you still have to be patient. God is the one who brings justice, not you. He's, he, you, can, you can imagine what happens if people don't listen to James. Eventually there's an uprising. Eventually there's violence. Eventually uh, there's hatred. And, and if not even outward violence, there's bitterness of spirit, which poisons the soul. You have to be patient. You have to say, God is the judge. I'm not. He's going to take care of this. So then James gives three examples of patience for us to be inspired by. And the first one he gives is the farmer. He says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. So obviously none of us are farmers in Israel, but in that part of the world, you counted on rain, rainy seasons at the beginning when you planted, and I assume that was to help the, help the seeds germinate, and then towards the end to, to bring those crops to fruition, literally. And, and as the farmer, you had to wait. Some of you have grown up on farms. Some of you garden for fun now. Some of you, though, grew up where uh, the farm was your livelihood. And you know about this. You know the patience it requires. Well, let me ask you, what happens if a farmer loses patience? Well, there's no crop. If you lose patience and you either say, I am done with this, I have hoed my last weed, and you walk away, well, then you and your kids starve. On the other hand, if you lose patience and you say, good grief, I can't wait until harvesting season. That looks good to me. I'm just going to pull it out of the ground now. Again, you starve. 
It requires patience. It requires faith that this plant is going to put out fruit and that fruit is going to become ripe. And when we harvest it, it's going to be enough to feed our family. In the same way, a Christian who refuses to pursue patience. You hear the way I framed that? I didn't say a Christian who is impatient because we're all impatient by nature. But a Christian who refuses to pursue patience, and by that, by, by that I mean who refuses to wake up every day and say, Lord, I need your patience. I need you to strengthen me to, to bear with this person. That is a good thing to pray. I need your patience to bear with this situation where I feel like I've reached the end of my rope, but I don't know how much longer this is going to last. You do, so give me patience until the end. A Christian who refuses to do that is a Christian who, who risks everything, who risks terrible damage, who, who hurts not only themselves, but everybody around them. I talked to a, a Christian once uh, who had been deeply, deeply hurt by a member of her family. And uh, she was just asking me, what should I do? What should I do? And I don't know if she was expecting me to outline some carefully crafted plan for vengeance or if she knew I was going to say this. I couldn't tell by her expression. But I said, well, you know, what you have to do first is forgive. You've got to. And not not just for the good of that person and not just because Jesus says so, but for your good. Because right now, you being mad at them, you being bitter towards them, is like you drinking poison and expecting them to die. And it's not working. And all it's doing is it's hurting you and it's hurting the people around you. Uh, and, and she looked at me and she said, I don't think I can. I don't think I can. And here's the problem. When you're in that situation where you are angry, where you are frustrated, to forgive or to ask God for patience feels like you're giving in doesn't it? But if I forgive them, when, then they're going to get off scot-free. No, they're not. God is there. you got to trust that He's going to bring about justice better than you can. Well, if I ask for patience, then, then I'll never get what I want. Oh, does that mean that you think that if you're not griping at God, He won't come through? Do you think that God requires someone to nag Him every single day or He won't answer your prayers? Is that the God you believe in? I think we need to have enough faith and trust in God to say, Lord, I'm frustrated, I'm upset, I don't know what to do, but I need patience because I don't want to harvest too quickly. You want to see an example in the scriptures of somebody who harvested too quickly? Some of you are already ahead of me, I bet. I can, I can guarantee you. Abraham and Sarah, right? God says, I'm going to make you a great nation. Abraham says, fantastic, I'm 75 years old. I've never had kids My wife and I have never been able to. That sounds wonderful. Years pass and years pass. And finally, Sarah comes to him and says, I, it's not happening, uh, but I've got this servant girl. She's young. She's healthy. Why don't we have a baby with her? Now, this doesn't get said often enough, but you know how awful that is? When I was growing up, I heard that story preached as, well, look, they didn't have faith in God. And that is absolutely true. But because they didn't have faith in God, they violated a person, a human being named Hagar. That is absolute violation because she was a slave. She couldn't say no. That's what that was. And one of the the most touching parts of the whole Bible story is that not once but twice God appears to that slave girl, an Egyptian slave girl, 
And the first time she says, I can't believe you came to me. I, she gave him the name, the God who sees. I can't believe that this God sees me. And both times that she's violated in some sense, God comes down and says, I see what happened. Now I'm on your side. I'm taking care of you. But that is what happens. I mean, are Abraham and Sarah heroes of the faith? Absolutely. Would I love to be like them in so many ways? Absolutely. But because they didn't have patience, look what they did. And you and I can make the same kinds of mistakes, awful mistakes, terrible mistakes, mistakes that can destroy our legacy and, and ruin people's lives if we don't pursue patience. Example number two is the example of the prophets. Now, if most of you are honest, I suspect you don't read the prophets very often. And if you do, it's probably only because you're like me and you try to read through the Bible every year. And, and if you're like me and you're honest, you would say, yeah, every time, I, every time I hit Isaiah, I'm like, okay, here we go. All right, got another long slog through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and on into the minor prophets, and it's going to be, okay, Daniel's fun. There's some good stories there. Oh, no, no, back into Hosea and Amos. Goodness, goodness gracious. This is, we don't enjoy the prophets. Why? Because they seem so angry. They're always in a bad mood. Well, you know why they were in a bad mood? I heard this years ago from another pastor, and I've loved it. I've stolen it. I'll give him credit. His name's John Ortberg. But um, he said, the reason the prophets were so angry he said, imagine that you are a person with perfect pitch. So musically speaking, you can, you can hit every note perfectly when you sing. And you can hear, you can hear to the, to the tiniest degree if a piano is the slightest bit out of tune or if a, a singer has, has missed uh, their pitch in some way. You, are, you have perfect pitch. Now imagine you're that person and you live in a world where nobody can sing, where everybody just sounds awful. Now would you be in a, in a bad mood? Everybody walks around singing just left and right. Would you be irritated? Yeah, you'd be a little grumpy. The prophets, he says, spiritually speaking, had perfect pitch. That doesn't mean they were perfect. That mean they never sinned. It means because they had this hotline to God, so to speak, because God was in communication with them in a way he wasn't in communication with anybody else back then before we had the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Because of that, they were keenly aware whenever someone was the slightest bit out of the will of God. They could see things through the eyes of the Lord and it drove them crazy because they knew, these people know the truth. They know what should be done and they're not doing it. And I've stood up on hillsides and, and told them, here's what's going to happen to you if you don't repent and get rid of your idols and, get and start treating your neighbor with justice and here's what's going to happen. And they don't listen. You know, Jeremiah uh, is probably the most depressing of the prophets to read because he lived through so much awful stuff. He didn't just prophesy about it. He knew he'd lived through it. We call him the weeping prophet for a reason. Because he knew he was going to see the fulfillment of all those awful prophecies. Now, that's, that's a long thing to say this. The prophets often grew discouraged. Jeremiah, at one point, was thrown into a well by the king of Judah because People were mad at him for prophesying Judah's destruction. You're, you're a traitor to our nation. You're, you're, you're weakening the, the morale of our troops by saying we're going to lose in this battle against, against Babylon. Jeremiah says, I'm just telling you the truth. No, get, get rid of him, threw him in a well. And he would have died if not for an Ethiopian man who, who rescued him from that, from that peril. Elijah, one of, my, uh, one of the guys I love to read about is Elijah because he's, he's everything 
Uh, he's so much that I wish I was. I'm, I'm not saying I wish I was exactly like Elijah. I, I don't like his choice of fashion, but, uh, uh, and I, I like to have a little more tact, but I, I'd sure wish I was as courageous as Elijah. And yet, at one point, he sat down under a tree and said, just kill me, Lord, just take me. I'm no good. I'm no better than my fathers. Uh, Isaiah stands before the king of Judah, Ahaz, and, and pleads with him, just, you don't need to sign a treaty with the king of Assyria. You've got the power of God. Trust in God. And Ahaz ignores him. So the prophets needed patience. And most of them never saw the fulfillment of their prophecies. So the lesson that, that James is giving us there is sometimes it's discouraging. Being patient doesn't mean that, oh, I was really patient today. God's going to reward me tomorrow. He may not. Sometimes there are some things we're praying for and seeking that we won't experience on this side of heaven. I'm sorry to say. And that was true of the prophets. Most of them never saw the fulfillment of most of their prophecies. None of them saw the Messiah until John the Baptist did. So be patient. Number three, the third example he gives is Job. Oh no, not Job. <laughs> That is a really stressful story to read. I, I always comfort myself by saying, I don't think God would do that again. He did it once to Job. I don't think he'd do it again. See, the, the lesson I think that James wants us to get from Job is that if you wait, if you're patient, if you don't give up, because remember what Job said when he lost everything. The Lord is given, the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all that Job said, he did not blaspheme God. He questioned God. He, he asked God for answers. He complained about his lot in life, but he still trusted in the Lord. He, one of my grandpa's favorite quotes in his later years was from Job when he said, though he slay me, yet will I praise him. Um, and at the end of the story, Job gets back more than he lost. Uh, God... God sees and God knows. So the unspoken lesson there is being patient doesn't mean you can't ever let somebody know what you're going through. Job's friends came to him. They asked him, they sat with him and Job was honest with them. This is what I'm struggling with. Now they blasted him for it. And in the end, the, my favorite part of the story is that God tells the, the three self-righteous friends, you need to let Job pray for you because he gets me and you don't. So it's not unrighteous to share with your friends, with your life group, with trusted people, I'm struggling here. I need answers. I need for you to pray for me. I need for you to help me bear my burdens. Just don't give up on God. Be patient. So those are the examples. Now here's the instruction. Right in the heart of this, he says something that seems not to fit. In verse 9, right in the middle of this section about patience, he says, don't grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Now, why does he say that? Well, the word grumble literally means to groan or to sigh. It's talking about criticism. It's talking about division within the church, within the family of God, the body of Christ. It may not be nice to say, but we all know it's true. In every church, no matter where you go, if you get fed up with this church and you go to another one, you'll find the same thing. There's going to be people that don't like you that you don't like. It's just the truth. There's going to be people that just aren't your cup of tea. 
And again, you leave First Baptist Conroe and you go, uh, you know, across town to uh, what other, whatever other church you want to go to. That person's waiting for you. You can't run away from them. And the test is, can you look at that person and say, you know, there's something about you that just doesn't jive with my personality, but Jesus died for you, just like he died for me. And he loves you, and so I need to love you. And so I'm going to be patient. I'm going to bear with you, because that's what I'm called to do, instead of grumbling against, instead of, instead of criticizing. Um, I want you to note sometime, do this study for yourself, how often unity is mentioned in the New Testament. That's something that doesn't get preached very often, and when it does get preached, there's always someone who comes up and says, well, you know, preacher, I, I, want, I want to hear some, some real gospel. Well, that's the scriptures. That's something God loves and cares about. Let me tell you one sign of how important unity is to God. 59 times in the New Testament alone, the word one another is used. 59 times it talks about love one another, forgive one another, be, uh, bear with one another in love, bear one another's burdens. 59 times, and I didn't count how many, but over and over again, it says, be of one mind, be of the same mind. Jesus wants us, this is his body, his family, he wants us to agree together. doesn't mean we have to think alike about everything, but it means that on the main things, we need to be united. And on the other things, we need to just keep that to yourself. You need, to, you need to understand what the, what, what's secondary issues and what aren't. You know, hopefully most of you do this in your own family. When you get together for Thanksgiving and you've got Uncle Joe who uh, votes completely different than you do, you just think, I'm just not going to talk about politics because I don't want to get into it with Uncle Joe. And, and if I get into it with Uncle Joe, I know I'm not going to change his mind and it's going to make everybody miserable. So I'm just, let's just won't talk about that. We'll talk about something we have in common. You know, Uncle Joe, where'd you go on your vacation this year? And that's what you talk about. Why? Because the, the unity of the family is more important than that argument or debate that you want to have. That's what we do in our family. Shouldn't we do it in the body of Christ? The unity of God's people matters. Now, please hear me. Doesn't mean there's never a time when a, when a negative word needs to be spoken, because there are times. There are times uh, when prophetic words needs to be need to be spoken. There are times when uh, people need to be confronted, and there are instructions in the scriptures for how to do that. And you you speak the truth in love, and you don't back down from that. But you always have to ask: Is is this worth disturbing the unity of God's church? Sometimes it is. Sometimes it is, but most of the time it's not. So I, I remember. Some of you know who, um, now I didn't write her down her name, but uh, relying on my memory, which is getting more and more risky. Famous Christian author, let's just say that. Famous Christian author whose name you would probably recognize if I could remember her name, uh, talked about one day she just felt led of the Holy Spirit to say, today, if, I'm, if what I'm about to say is not positive, I'm just not going to say it at all. I'm just going to try for 24 hours. I'm not going to say one negative thing. I'm not going to complain. I'm not going to criticize. I'm just going to speak positive words. And at the end of the day, she was horrified at the fact that she spoke almost nothing. 
I mean, she was virtually silent the whole day. She thought, can it really be true that all I ever say are gripey and fussy and complaining and, and backbiting things? And so I want to challenge you, and I'm not going to ask you how it went, <laughs> but try that sometime. Try that tomorrow. And just say, if it's not positive, if it doesn't build up, then don't say it. Just see how it goes. It'll be all right, I, I promise. God, God will continue to spin the earth without your advice, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure. So I, I read a story, this name I wrote down, Craig Rochelle, a pastor in Oklahoma, um, right before church one day. Their church is much bigger than ours, so they have multiple services. So in between services, he was up at the front of the church and he was just, he had his head bowed, he was praying, getting his heart ready to get up and preach again, and he felt uh, somebody shove something under his hand. You know, he had his hand on the, on the pulpit, or on the uh, pew, and he felt a sheet of paper go under his hand, and he thought, oh, well, wonder what this is. And he, he opened his eyes after he said amen, and it was a, an envelope. And he thought, oh, well, some, some church members, you know, sending me a word of encouragement. He opened it. He didn't even see who gave it to him. He opened it, and it was a list of complaints. It was a list of gripes about him, not just about the church, about him. And he, it, it made him mad. You know, first of all, he's like, of all the times, I mean, right before I'm going to go preach, you want to hit me with this? And then second of all, I mean, none of this stuff is legitimate. I can't believe, well, how can you say these things about me after all that I've done, after how hard I work? And, you know, here I am, God's man for this church. And, and he's getting really, really angry. And he's thinking, I wonder if it was so-and-so. I wonder if it was that person. I wonder if it was, let me see if this handwriting... I, and then the Holy Spirit got hold of him and said, don't worry about it. And what he realized was someone who would do that has probably been through something really bad. If you've got, if you've got that kind of anger in your heart that you'll give a man a note of criticism in that moment when he's praying, then there's probably something going on in your life that has really hurt you. And the Holy Spirit is revealing this to, to this pastor right, at, right before the service starts. I don't need to find this person. I just need to pray for them and find out what, what has happened to them. They need the Lord's blessing to get them through this. He ended up feeling sorry for this person genuinely. And he said, I, I, I just offer this to you for the future. When you've got that person who criticizes you relentlessly, just understand somewhere, sometime in the past, somebody hurt them. And that's what you're experiencing. That's not to give them a pass. But it is for you to understand so you don't feel like you have to strike back. Now, I'll just leave you with this. In the midst of that instruction, no grumbling against one another. He says, behold, the judge is standing at the door. That is an ominous statement, isn't it? And we all know the judge he's talking about. We will face judgment. And we know, we know as Christians that our judgment is, is not a, a determination whether we're saved or lost. That's already been determined at the cross, but we will have to give an accounting for our lives. And on that day, don't you want to know, don't you know that every time we've been impatient with someone else, we'll remember how patient he's been with us. It's not that he's going to lash us across the back or, or, or do anything like that, I don't believe. But it, I think the sorrow we will feel if we spend our whole lives lashing out, our whole lives getting revenge, 
and we'll understand on that day, you know, he was patient with me through it all. Through it all. How many times did he hold back when he could have rejected me, could have destroyed me? Think about how patient he is with you and seek after patience. Pray for it because you weren't born with it, I can promise you, but he can give it to you. All right, I'm going to pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you and pray your blessing upon each one of us individually. Grow us in all the fruit of the Spirit, but especially patience. Lord, I thank you for the unity of this church. It is so precious and and such a, a joy to me, I know even more so to you. I pray that it would not be damaged or disturbed, but increased, that we would love one another all the more. For it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.